and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and I am particularly thrilled to be presenting this week's podcast. It's not every week I get to talk to a colleague who has written a book on the Spiegel bestsellers list. But this week, that's exactly what I'm going to do. We're going to be talking about Germany's and by extension, Europe's relationship with China. And I'm going to be talking to Janka Ertl, who is the head of ECFR's Asia program, a senior policy fellow at ECFR, and the author of a brand new book called Ende der China Illusion, Wie wir mit Peking's Machtanspruch umgehen müssen which translates roughly into English as the end of the China illusion, how to deal with Beijing's claim to power. So it's just come out in German, and it came out only a few weeks after Germany published its very first China strategy. This document, which had been hotly anticipated, had got stuck in a never-ending bureaucratic tug of war between the different warring parties in Germany's governing coalition, but has finally seen the, the light of day and I think is contributing to quite a big shift in the European debates about China. And to help us make sense both of China and of how Germans see China, and as I said earlier, what this means for Europe, we have uh, this very special podcast where Janka will be able to share with us a lot of the thinking, which I think she's distilled a kind of career's worth of thinking into, into a relatively short and very punchy book. And we're going to work through some of the kind of key elements of her thesis, but also think about what's happening to the German debate, because as the source of over half of European trade with China where Germany goes, Europe uh, often seems to follow. So, Janka, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mark. So why don't we start with the book and why you wrote it? Why you did, why did you decide to, to write this book now? So the German-China strategy has a sentence in there that says, China has changed and therefore we have to change our approach. It then goes into the approach quite a bit, but it actually doesn't really say how China has changed. What this book is trying to do is trying to explain how China has changed. What do we need to look at? What has changed under Xi Jinping? Why does this matter for Europe? Why does this matter for Germany? And I think this is something that is sort of the intention behind it was to um, make this digestible and understandable for a pretty broad audience, to make it accessible for people that are you know, high school teachers in northern Germany, lawyers in Bavaria, because everyone will have to have a sort of relationship to this now, need to understand why German economic policy may see a pretty apocal shift, because that will have an effect on how Germany is run and how it can do business in the future and how its economy is going to work and how power is going to be distributed. And therefore, I think this needs sort of a broad societal buy-in in the end. Um, you need to have a broader public conversation about what this whole risk management, risk rearrangement, de-risking conversation means in the end for an economy that is so used to being very deeply integrated in a globalized world and is now seeing that the world is changing around it. So why, why don't we start with that big question about how Xi Jinping has changed China? How has the sort of China challenge changed? 
So I think I'm trying in the book to sort of lay out what the expectation was when, when Xi Jinping started. The expectation was one of sort of linearity. The years under Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao particularly were very good years for Germany and China relations. Merkel and Wen Jiabao had a very close relationship. The trade was going really well. Investment was going really well. Both sides really kind of benefited very much from the relationship. And it sort of seemed like this win-win cooperation would see no losers. Right? It would really, truly be something where both sides benefited. And at the start of, of Xi Jinping's term in office, that was sort of the expectation. He was talking about the China dream, and it was very much anticipated in Germany that a lot of German dreams would come true as well, while you know the China dream would come into fulfillment. And I think this is something that over the first five years of uh, Xi Jinping's time in office um, has started to change, where it was pretty clear the focus was much more on kind of stabilizing Communist Party rules, stabilizing the ideological space, um, making China or bringing the Communist Party back from corruption and decay that Xi Jinping saw in, in the party and taking it back to more kind of an ideological basis for China to grow and then packing all of that in a much more nationalistic agenda, a much more China centered agenda, one focused on a lot of autonomy to insulate China from what would what was perceived as a more kind of a China under siege from the outside, one that was under uh, pressure from the West and that Xi Jinping wanted to turn into or wants to turn into a China that can make its own choices. Maybe before we get into de-risking, should we start with the risk? You described this change in China. Can you talk a bit about how and why that poses a risk to Germans and to Europeans more generally? Yeah, I think the the risk dimension of this was something that, you know, the conditions in China in terms of the legal conditions haven't changed so much over the decades. Um, But the political risk was not there. It was deliberately taken out of the economic relationship because political relations were so good between Germany and China, between Europe and China more broadly. This lowered the political risk just significantly and therefore companies didn't have to price it in. The risk calculation changed with kind of domestic changes in China. It changed with U.S.-China relations. It changed with the Trump administration that sort of reinstilled risk into the relationship quite deliberately and was kind of changing the dynamics of the relationship. And all of that is changing the calculus for German companies on the ground. On top of that came the pandemic and the decisions of the Chinese government to basically put all of China under under lockdown and stop the relationship with the world from one day to the next, therefore disrupting supply chains and making it really difficult for um, the European businesses on the ground to sort of get used to a what seemed like a very erratic way and a very um, totalitarian way of dealing with the pandemic, lockdowns, closing offs, etc. And so all of this together just created a different background for the risk calculation of companies on the ground. Could you maybe unpack that a bit more? Because there's quite a lot in there. You know, both things that China is doing to companies, were, you know, and things that the US is doing to de-risk itself from China, which have got implications for for third parties. And then, you know, some of it is to do with the pandemic and a bit. But if you want to break it down into kind of recognizable pieces, maybe give some illustrations. I think that would be very helpful. So the US-China relationship bit, um, I think, is really important to think through, right? So if you have a China that is more focused on its own autonomy, of making itself less dependent on the world, but making the world more dependent on China, and that meets 
a US that is sort of trying to do the same thing that is inherently going to lead to a conflictual relationship because you can't have two players doing the same approach that probably won't logically work out really well. It will necessarily lead into a sort of confrontation. What I'm kind of trying to describe in the book is that while the Trump administration before it started was quite strong in its narrative and it was beating the anti-China drums, it was using that also to kind of generate hostility that would then kind of carry Trump into his office. While they were in office, it was actually in a real attempt there at the beginning to strike a deal. It was the sort of notion uh, in, in Trump's head as well that no one actually negotiated well with China before and he could cut the deal and he could get it done. The fact that he didn't, um, the fact that he wasn't able to get it done, and the fact that Xi Jinping basically said, no, no, that deal that you negotiated isn't good enough, um, and we're not going to sign on to this because this is not going to be beneficial for China, um, set the framework for what then happened later on and for how the relationship could evolve afterwards. And it created a kind of action and reaction spiral of ever escalating from tariffs to export controls and a, a deterioration of trust and political relations between the two sides. And that's not something that Europe is isolated from. That is something that Europe is very deeply embedded in because it is part of the overall narrative. So this means that we're now affected when it comes to U.S. export controls in the chip supply chain, then Dutch companies and German laser producers are just as affected as American companies. So we cannot isolate ourselves from these risks that are emerging from that. Then I think the, the second dimension is the the kind of legal conditions in China and how they've changed, including the anti-espionage law and other legal constraints in the national security law that have created a framework in China that made it more, just more risky to do business. Um, it makes it more risky to get business intelligence. It makes it more risky to do research because the legal conditions are just a lot more opaque. Anything can be framed as a national security challenge or an espionage case. And because there were also then Westerners that have been detained around that and business people, um, it was something that has had an effect on the perception of risk in the Chinese market. So there are about 10 or so German companies which form the kind of heart of the German economic relationship with China and a lot of the European relationship, given how much that most of the European relationship is the German relationship. Yeah. Can you maybe talk a bit more, just to make this a bit more accessible, about some of the dilemmas which some of these big companies, where whether it's car companies like Volkswagen or um, chemicals companies like BASF, might base in this kind of environment that you're talking about, caught between the US and, and China? So what these companies are facing right now is the pressure on the Chinese side to localize their business, to become more Chinese. That's the whole kind of idea. They should innovate in China, they should hire in China, they should grow in China, should then produce for the Chinese market, um, hire Chinese people, pay taxes in China, have a fully localized supply chain so that they're a bit um, like that. So they're isolated from the rest as well and therefore really dependent on the Chinese market. At the same time, they are still making good profits, particularly in those sectors. There are other sectors um, that have become a lot more problematic for Europeans to actually be able to conduct business in them. Um, some, in some sectors, European companies have completely left the market. I think the telecom sector is a really good example of how you know, the, the slice has been shrinking um, in terms of what they've been getting in the Chinese market. And I think this is why there are these kind of some German companies that are caught in a different time span in a way. While a lot of companies have already experienced that not only the Chinese pie isn't growing as fast anymore, but also that their slice is becoming disproportionately smaller day by day, some of the German companies have not gone through that experience yet because they provide 
technologies, products that are particularly desirable in China at the moment. But we're seeing cracks in that. The best example at the moment, I think, is probably the um, NEVs, the electric vehicle sector, where you know we were talking about the kind of the cars of, of Volkswagen, where there's always the standard line that 40% of Volkswagen's cars are sold in China. And how are you going to you know replicate that market? It's not like you could sell all those cars to India. And that's absolutely correct. But what this logic doesn't imply then is that that market is shrinking anyway. You know, Volkswagen's market shares are going to go smaller, smaller and smaller um, because Chinese competitors are taking on those market shares, not only in China, but actually now in the EV sector also globally. And this is where it's one of the illusions that I'm trying to tackle in the book is like, are we talking about the imaginary Chinese market that we would like to see a linear projection of the past, something that we thought we could have a growth rates of 5%, 6-7% per year and a continued slice of 20, 30, 40% of market shares in there. That's obviously a market that we will not be able to replace anytime soon. But that's also not going to be the market that China is going to be in the next decade. And I think that's really important. So that's some of the risk to big German companies. Do you want to talk about some of the other risks? Because you've got a whole series of illusions in your book, which you go through. If you maybe could think about some of the sort of political and foreign policy risks as well. Yeah, so I do think that we, we're in a situation right now where the China-Russia relationship is obviously one of the key um, dimensions that is having an effect on European thinking on China. Whereas in the past, um, I would say, the notion that China is a security threat to Europe would not have been something that would have caught on very much. Um, it would be seen as something that, well, the US may think that for the US, China is a military challenge, China's a security challenge, but not for Europe. We have no skin in that game. This is not really our thing. Russia is our main kind of security question that we have to deal with. Um, the fact that the Chinese government decided after the Russian invasion in Ukraine to behave differently than it did in 2014, where it sort of took a backseat and was really careful and never acknowledged the annexation of Crimea, but also just stayed in the background of the debates. In, in 2022, the Chinese government decided that um, it wants to show more support to Russia and has since deepened the relationship. Um, not only politically, diplomatically, through state visits and kind of showing great support, but also economically, where we see exponential rise in trade between the two sides, where we see an exponential growth in kind of the, the overall cooperation relationship on the diplomatic sphere, on the trade sphere, um, and just kind of in the security political cooperation that we see between the two sides. And that has obviously changed the way that China is perceived um, in terms of its security impact, also in vast parts of Europe. I mean, that includes the delivery of body armor, helmets, vehicles, etc., that are directly linked to the Russian war effort, but also the question of stabilizing the Russian economy, which is not going down well in many parts of Eastern Europe in particular. And so this shift is amplifying some of the tendencies that we've seen before. So the idea that kind of China does not play a role in European security, I think, has gone out the window in February 2022. Okay, so there's a very clear foreign policy dimension, which is getting closer and closer. What about some of the other illusions? Maybe talk about climate for a bit, because that's the, the sort of bromide which people always uh, trot out when they talk about their relationship with China, you know, with the three, the trinity of, of seeing China as, as a competitor, as a, as a systemic rival and as a partner. 
a partner, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then you ask and you go around and ask all of the different capitals. I mean, at ECFR, we have the huge privilege that we get to go around Europe quite a bit and we get to talk to different kinds of Europeans quite a lot. And when you ask, you know, in 27 member states, what is the area in which we're still a partner with, with China? And 27 member states say, climate immediately, then you know something's up. You know, we never agree on anything so quickly, so fast. If everyone thinks it's our partner, then either we don't know what we're talking about or something is wrong. And you have a chapter whose title is China is no partner for global climate change. So tell us why. Correct. And I think it's probably one of the most counterintuitive one. It actually... Well, it's actually, I mean, we, we have published on this at ECFR before. Um, I think we have been uh, very clear in our Climate Superpowers report as well already um, a few years ago that um, we would challenge that blunt notion of saying China has to be our partner in climate change because that just doesn't imply much. You know, what is it supposed to mean that China has to be our partner in climate change? What it actually means is China has to decarbonize. China has to decarbonize fast, whether partnership is the right avenue towards that, or whether a competitive environment in which there is a kind of competitive um, relationship between Europe and China for who can decarbonize faster, who can capture market space in green technologies, who can be the leader um, on a lot of these questions from the regulatory space to the technology to the trade space. That's something that in the ECFR research that we've done on this, and kind of I conclude that in the book as well, is something that we think is, that I can strongly argue, is the better way of framing it. Because on the Chinese side, the climate conversation is framed very differently. We're currently, Mark, as you know, we're working on another research project together um, where we're looking into also environmental debates. We're looking into the debates of thinkers in China um, and we're looking into concepts such as ecological civilization or beautiful country. And these are very national concepts. There is a very national notion about decarbonization and environmental questions. And that's one that works actually much better for the Chinese discourse than an international climate conversation. So I think um, the way that we have uh, framed this, our thinking is that only if China becomes our partner in international climate negotiations will we be able to kind of um, limit the global warming to 1.5 degrees or under. And I don't think that that's a precondition for anything, but it actually limits our thinking in terms of what do we want to achieve? And do we put climate into a space where we say, we will not do other things to buy Chinese cooperation in these international spaces? Um, And I think that's the big danger. And how do you see these different spheres? We should move on to what we're doing to de-risk it in the German-China strategy quite soon. But maybe I'll just ask you one more question because one of the interesting things is obviously there are lots of these different elements of the, the risk profile which we talked about, but they all sort of merge together as well in different ways. And climate's quite an interesting one because, you know, some people used to argue that that actually, you know, if China wants to massively subsidize its solar energy industry and produce solar panels, which it sells at a loss, you know, surely that's a good thing for us. We can kind of decarbonize more cheaply. You know, you could even extend that to, to the EV debate at the moment. You know, is it not a good thing that we can buy electronic vehicles uh, under the market cost for producing them? As Europe moves towards this idea of de-risking and seeing China as a kind of risk, you know, one of the big things that they're doing is working out ways of pushing back about that. And also von der Leyen in her State of the Union speech singled out electric vehicles as a particular threat to, to the European market. How do you see these different things coming together? Because you've got a lot of questions which are both security questions, economic technology questions, but also to do with the kind of energy transition and foreign policy at the same time as well. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And I think that's the big challenge as well at the moment, right? If you only take a climate lens, if you say, what do we have to do to decarbonize the world as quickly as possible? Having China provide cheap goods for that is absolutely fantastic, right? This is, you basically say, you know, this is the way to do this as quickly as possible, as much as possible, let China own all of those market spaces. But that won't work for social stability in Germany. If we lose kind of all of the jobs in the car industry, all the jobs in the green industry, it will be difficult to sustain. So if you want to look at de-risking a bit, I think it's kind of, it's the new way of risk balancing. I always imagine a little bit like a DJ, you know, that is kind of trying to find the right sound, um, getting the right bass and getting up all the different levers that you can pull. And you have to get the risk balance right here for the economic risk, the kind of individual company risk, the risk to the your societies, um, the risk to the climate and the risk to your security. And only if you get a sound that sort of works for Germany, you will be able to kind of conduct good policy. The problem that I think Germany is facing here is that in comparison to Japan or the US that are all doing the same thing, trying to find their new risk sound, Germany can do this, but it cannot do this in isolation because it has to work with all of the other European sounds as well. And this is the big challenging moment that Germany finds itself in. You have to get sort of the balance better um, equipped now. So that perfect bridge to the German-China strategy. Tell us about de-risking with German characteristics. Well, I mean, the German-China strategy is really good in the analysis bit. It's like describing the China that we're seeing right now, describing the challenges. It is still a bit muffled in terms of what we're going to do about it. It now tells us what we need to look at from securing critical infrastructure to cybersecurity and all of these questions, but it doesn't give us the kind of concrete, okay, these are the measures that need to be taken immediately. The implementation process will start now um, and it will go on for quite a while. It is basically a rejigging of the way business has been done in the past. Um, it is pretty strongly focused on the kind of the economic level. It does have a component on kind of strengthening China competency. It does have a component on the on the question of kind of human rights and um, how where we can work with China, how cooperation should look like. But it has a pretty big aspect that is just about us, about resilience, defensiveness, strengthening Germany, strengthening Europe. And I think this is where um, the next step needs to now start, where you know just playing defense won't make you win the game. This needs to start moving also into the zone where Europe and Germany is taking a lead in making a good offer to the rest of the world, where this is something that, you know, making it attractive to work with Europe, to work with Germany on a lot of these aspects. And I think that's something where a good mix of tools will be important. You've mentioned the EV subsidies question. I do think that that is a a good way of looking into what Europe can do. This is classic toolbox. This is classic stuff that the EU does. Competitiveness questions. You know, are there subsidies? Is there something that is market distorting? This is something that where the Europe is just using its correct, its very classic rule of law toolbox that it has at hand and is investigating a problem that could have a huge impact on the market. It is a question about cybersecurity. It is a question about, you know, having little surveillance cells going around on European streets and having consumer transparency about that, about what they can do. So all of these questions are coming together at the moment. And I think um, it is a good moment in which Germany should focus on what it can do within Europe on this. This is the bit in the China strategy that is probably the weakest. Maybe before we go on to the Europe thing, because I'd like to, to end with that, can talk a little bit about some of the dilemmas which 
Germany faces. One of, one of the things which people have talked a lot about is the sort of partly about the, if we go back to the risk question, who decides what the risks are and who takes action to, to deal with them? And the German-China strategy does lay out quite a lot of the risks, as you said, in the analytic part, but it leaves a lot of the execution to, to private companies to decide what the risks are for themselves and to take what actions they want to take. Can you describe that kind of debate a little bit? Yeah, so there's a fundamental conversation about how you can create a framework in which the de-risking is, is seen as something that is inherently political. I think the, the conversation that we're having here, and we see a big debate between the Chancery and the Foreign Office here, on and also the Economics Ministry, on who actually can make that call on what a de-risking looks like. And for the private companies, this is going to be really, really difficult. They can't decide. They can decide what's in their company interests. They can decide what is best for their shareholders. But for them to give them to burden them with the task or decide what's best for German and even maybe European society seems a bit much. De-risking is something that can only be a fundamentally political task because, as I said about those kind of levers of the DJ that have to be pulled, that the government can have a kind of broader overview of what the balance of the climate risk versus the security risk versus the economic risk should look like. Um, I don't think that, um, you know, as much as I don't want to say something about the competencies of BASF or Volkswagen managers, I don't think that that is within the realm of their ability. Now, what the government wants to do is to say the companies should look at their own China risk. They should de-risk their business with China. Now, that's obviously true. But if we look at the current figures and we have new numbers came out today from the EV, Jürgen Matters presented them, then we see no de-risking. We see no incentive of these big companies to limit their exposure to China and to diversify their activities. So if we look at those figures, kind of just empirically saying, just telling the companies to do this will not work if you don't incentivize them or kind of uh, create conditions that will um, actually make change happen. Thanks. I mean, you know, the debates you're talking about are not just German debates. If you look at Apple, for example, you know, it's far more exposed than almost any other company in the world to the US-China relationship, <laughs> given the way that it's kind of structured. And, you know, it has made some sort of token gestures of opening up some plants in India and various other places, but it hasn't sort of gone anywhere near diversifying from China in a kind of serious no. way. Presumably, it would have to if there was a war in Taiwan or something like that. But how do you get companies to to kind of calibrate these sorts of risks? Because at the moment, the you know Apple is all in and is so completely bound into you know it's very much constructed these extraordinarily complex supply chains over lots of different years. It's built all these factories. It's got this very very symbiotic relationship with Foxconn, which which makes it pretty difficult to imagine Apple actually managing to de-risk from China. Some of the German companies seem to have gone down a similar path. How would you advise them to kind of think about these things and to calibrate the risks? I mean, Apple is, is not only making a token investment in India, it's looking at moving 25% of its production already. That's not I would, what I would consider at the scale of iPhone production. I would not consider that a token investment. But nevertheless, of course, it remains quite strongly embedded in the Chinese system. I think there's always this question of what is the alternative, right? So how does the risk balance look for you? If you think as a company that your risk balance still looks fine and that a massive escalation between a US and China, some a situation in which you would face you know, a Russia-Europe style sudden um, decoupling um, of the economic relationship, something that is now very well within the realm of possibility. It doesn't say that it happens tomorrow. It doesn't say that it happens at all, but it is within the realm of possibility. Um, if that were to happen, then how exposed are you? 
And do you think that your company can stomach that um, and can survive that and will be fine? I do think that we should leave responsibility also with companies to say that they can make their own mistakes and make their own decisions. You know, this is completely fine. The question is just whenever this creates broader societal risk, whenever this creates risks that would then need to have the government step in to save these companies, then it becomes a question that is not just a business interest question. And what the German government has been trying to do with like the rollout of the strategy is to describe a kind of a no bailout clause, trying to say, you know, we will not help you. You can do this, but we will not help you. Now, whether the companies will call the government's bluff and say, well, you know, if it's really bad, you will come help us anyway, which is, I think, a little bit of the calculation that is behind this now, or that if an escalation like this happens, it's going to be so bad for the overall global economy that honestly, you know, us de-risking a little bit to Vietnam is not going to make any difference here at all. So we might as well just continue our business. I think that's the, the situation we look into some of these companies. But for other companies, it will look very different. And I do think that it is more about the question of what is your anticipation of your future market share in the Chinese market? What is your anticipation? Is it a very positive one? Then I assume that in most sectors, that will be an overly positive one. It will be one that is probably driven more by you know, wishful thinking than by reality. So I think it's more about you know, the overall access size and proportion in the Chinese market that should worry businesses themselves. So let's end with with Europe. Um, we've seen a sort of gradual process of, of strategizing on China. It's amazing how far we've come in the last few years and how much convergence there's been. But we seem to be entering a new phase. And we talked a bit about the EV decision, but that seems to be going beyond sort of rhetorical positioning to to really fleshing out different aspects of the toolbox that you were you were talking about. How do you see that debate evolving? What are the next kind of frontiers going to be? How does Germany kind of relate to that European debate? And you know, what what are you thinking about the the next phase of uh, European China policy? So we saw with the speech that was von der Leyen gave in March uh, of this year that the kind of the commission is trying to push this into a new phase as well, sort of like it was with the um, strategic communication that came out in 2019, where it kind of nudged the consensus one step forward and allowed for everyone to follow suit. Von der Leyen seemed to have done that again, just kind of nudge the consensus a bit out from where it actually is, nudge it a bit forward and see who follows. Now, this time pushback was quite a bit harder and uh, there was a lot of irritation and there's a lot of kind of insecurity among Europeans because precisely after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, everything looks very different. Geopolitics just looks very different. Overall around Europe, there's just a much insecure environment, a much more unstable environment that is um, leading a lot of governments to just kind of hedge a bit more um, and to be more careful in, in their kind of conversations when when it comes to China. So I think that this kind of moving towards a new European consensus on China policy is still a huge amount of work that probably will not be concluded with this commission. It's very unlikely that um, Ulda von der Leyen will be able to put all of the tools in place before kind of the end of the mandate of this of her commission presidency here. Um, but she's trying to kind of instill some of the elements of this, which is the economic security agenda that we're seeing at the moment that kind of sharpens the toolbox on the economic side. There's a cybersecurity dimension to all of this. And it's the, the question of the outreach. This is probably the weakest bit of it. Again, the defensive side looks a lot better. The sort of offensive side, the making the attractive offer side is still one that is underdeveloped at the moment. It will need political will among leading European states, first and foremost, Germany, of course, to actually push this forward. In the past, Germany has often dragged its feet on China policy at the European level. If we look at just 10 years back, 
um, you know, when the commission wanted to act against solar and um, and telecoms um, subsidies that were given to Chinese companies and wanted to actually already start an investigation, then the German government stopped it because it was worried about the car industry. Well, now it's about the car industry. We'll see where this ends, um, where this lands, but it will come down to German willingness to actually put itself into the wind there and have the others kind of shield them from some of the storm that is about to rage there. I do, I do think that um, Europe-China relations in the next few years are becoming going to become a lot more bumpy. Thank you very much, Anka. We cover quite a lot of the ground. We haven't covered all the, the, the different risks in your book, but it's important to leave people with an excuse to go and buy it from all good bookshops. So um, I would recommend one book um, by Simon Sharp, Five Times Faster. Um, it's a book on climate change, um, but the notion in it is very much the logical kind of, there's a similar logic to the book that I wrote, that is kind of, even if you have all the kind of analytical tools together, even if you know what the problem is, sometimes there are problems that are so urgent that you just need to act five times faster and that that's the policy solution to this, right? The urgency, instilling the urgency into the political conversation. And I really like the way he kind of describes um, his own frustrations with this, um, which reminded me a lot about China policy. And I do think there are a lot of similarities between China, climate policy and China policy, because both of them were such a big structural shift that doesn't immediately show, but it sort of gradually shows and makes it harder because there's always going to be the other crisis, um, the more immediate one that's going to override it. So I very much recommend that. And then the other thing that's on my bookshelf at the moment is uh, Victor Sebastian's Lenin biography, because I do think at the moment, reading a bit of Lenin um, is kind of helpful for understanding what's happening in China. Okay, well, check out those books. Also check out Janka's book. It's got rave reviews in the Zeit, in the Süddeutsche Zeitung. It's being plastered all over television and radio in all German-speaking countries, and uh, it's really worth the read. Thank you very much for joining us, Janka. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please head to whatever platform you've used to download this episode and subscribe to future episodes. And while you're there, be great if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating because it will help bring other people to the podcast. We'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned, including Yanka's book on our website at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Yanka Erkel and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The research for this podcast is Anand Sunder and the editor of this episode is Pierre Jacobi. Mm-hmm.